do ground control to Major Tom. Do 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 Ground control to Major Tom. Do Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Do Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown, dum dum dum. Check ignition and may God's love be with you. This is Major Tom to ground control. I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in the most peculiar way Hey, what's going on? <laughs> I figure that's a great way to sort of start the stream, right? Um, I'm really excited about this. I'm excited about this one because, man, I'm just like making content. Boom, boom, boom. I just recorded a 40-minute uh, uh, vlog Review of Halloween 6, the theatrical cut, The Curse of Michael Myers. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Tonight, I'm going to be on the Sea of Tranquility at uh, 9 o'clock. So check that out as well. Um, I love Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. He is, he's the GOAT, man. He's just he, uh, the, the be-all, end-all of just meticulous, well-crafted composition you know, um, making films so much. He doesn't make movies, man. He makes films. He makes cinema, man. You know what I mean? Like what he does is just it. it it's just it's just on another level. It's on another level. Dude is like, you know, when I hear Quentin Tarantino talk about having to want, like, he wants like ten films in his discography and that filmography and that's it. I always think that he's kind of like you know feeling Kubricky about it. You know, Kubrick made like 13 films, you know, he'd go like eight years, nine years, 10 years in between making films, you know, um, kind of amazing when you think about it. I think he did. Okay. So it was, it was, it was eight, it was seven or eight years between the shining and full metal jacket. And then from full metal jacket, which came out in 87, he didn't make another film until 99. So like, he really was like, not there was no urgency for him to just keep churning out stuff. And, you know, like there's a lot of unmade Kubrick projects. It's not like everything that he wanted to make got made per se, but it's interesting. Nonetheless, he, he fascinates me. And, you know, one of his greatest films, you know, of which there are not many Kubrick films here shining, get that, get to that in a second. One of his, one of his greatest films, you know, the film that really sort of launched him into the the inter international notoriety. I mean, he was already known for Strange Love. He was already known for Lolita. Two incredible films. He he did he did Cleopatra and stuff. But he he took everything went to a whole other level when he came out with 2001: Space Odyssey, right? And 2001, some people think it's overrated and, you know, whatever. When I look at it, it, to me, it is, it's just so, it's so well made. It's so well crafted. Shot on 65 millimeter film, you know, which, you know, if you think about film in digital terms, 
the the bigger your your the bigger your frame, the more high resolution it's going to be. So, like shooting in seventy is like shooting in eight K for celluloid, you know. So, and you know, it's made before computers. Everything's done optical. You know, it's just all, all that movie. And the thing about that movie is it really holds up. The effects hold up. Everything about it holds up because of its craftsmanship. You know what I mean? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. In any case, Kubrick was, you know, not a guy to talk about or interpret his films. That's not what he was ever about. There are no director's commentaries for Stanley Kubrick films because he didn't like to do them. He always wanted the audience to come up with, you know, what the film was about on their own. And, you know, we always thought it was for loftier reasons, but, you know, hearing this recording, this clip, I listened to the recording and reading this article, like I'm kind of blown away that he actually in, in this one instance did explain what he was intending with the film, because no one knows what the ending about, Space Odyssey is about. I mean, some people have some idea, but he just spells it out so well. And the ending is brilliant. Let's just read. Let's launch into it. I'm, I'm going to stop with my preamble because I don't think I'm very well spoken on the matter. But let's read about it. Now, I'm not going to play the clip. And the reason why it has nothing to do with copyright, it's because his voice is so low on the recording. You can click into it. If you can see, if you can, if you get it to this website, you can click into it. This is from Far Out Magazine, which I've really come to enjoy. It's a great, great online periodical. And this is by Calum Russell. Okay. Um, possibly the finest film of Stanley Kubrick's illustrious career, 2001 A Space Odyssey, is considered to be one of if not the best science fiction film of all time. Now, is it the best science fiction film of all time? I don't know. But is it one of them? Absolutely. I mean, it is. It's an astounding piece of work. You know, and then you get all these people that like wanted to do their like hot take hipster, you know, pretentiousness. No, it's really not that great. It's like, no, shut up. It is great. It's great. People laud it for a reason, man. People, things are venerated for, for reasons. There are some things that are overrated in this world. I think 2001 is not one of them, okay? It's just not. Um, a revolutionary work that was way ahead of its time, 2001 remains a cinematic enigma that examines technology, evolution, and human identity, keeping audiences guessing since the release of the film in 1968. So it's been... It's been like 52 years, man, 50, 51 years, 52 years. People are still trying to figure out what Space Odyssey is about. Same thing with The Shining, for that matter. And he explains both films in this one five-minute phone call. You really should watch the clip. It's a great clip. He says, as his most complicated piece of cinema, purveyors of film around the world have long been eager to unlock the film's truth even if Kubrick himself doesn't subscribe to one single interpretation. Speaking in an interview with Playboy magazine, the filmmaker stated, you're free to speculate as you wish about the philosophical and allegorical meaning of the film. And such speculation is one uh, indication that it has succeeded in gripping the audience at a deep level. But I don't want to spell it out. Uh, I don't want to spell out a verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue. And I just want to say, I think that he really, truly 
felt that in the bottom of his heart. Like he definitely meant that. And you, you know, we know this because, you know, we've heard, I mean, that he was on brand with that his entire life, but it's just interesting how in this just like rare unguarded moment on a phone conversation, perhaps he didn't even know that he was being recorded when this phone conversation was happening. Cause here's the thing, this comes from a, a documentary. I think the article explains it. I did pre-read this article, the document, this comes from a documentary that was never released, but this clip leaked. Who knows if he knew he was being recorded when he said what he said, which I find interesting. However, Stanley Kubrick, contradicts this belief in 1980. I don't think it's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's just he, in an unguarded moment, felt okay expressing what he personally intended. He's ne- he still never on a public level talked about it. He didn't spell it out for anybody. He wanted people to come up with their own thing. I think that's awesome. And, you know, uh, you know, you might call this pretentious or whatever, but like, I-, I think that's, I think that like, that should be like a tenant of being a good filmmaker is not like, trying to spoon feed what the art means. Once you put the art into the world, it's up to the audience to interpret what it is, you know, on some level. Um, So Stanley Kubrick contradicts his belief in 1980. That's 12 years after the film comes out when he appears in a documentary from filmmaker, uh, I'm not going to even try and pronounce his name, Junchi Yao, who was making a behind the scenes look at the paranormal experiences that occurred on the set of The Shining. Though the documentary was never actually released, a clip from the film featuring a telephone conversation with Kubrick has since surfaced online, where the late director reveals his intentions behind 2001 A Space Odyssey. I was like, when I clicked on this, I thought it was going to be some clickbait bullshit and I wasn't going to get a, 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 like a, a concrete answer. And I was so wrong. You got, I got everything that I wanted. And, you know, what Kubrick intended absolutely just like speaks to me so much. Like I love it. I love what he means. I mean, I think the public has sort of deciphered some of what he intended, but you know, to hear it from Kubrick's lips really just floors me to no end. Continuing. He adds the idea. Oh no. He says in a telephone interview, uh, Yao asks, People are wondering, what is the meaning? And this is actually in the video clip. You can hear this. Uh, People are wondering, what is the meaning of the last scene? Could you give us answers? Referring to the final scene in 2001, where the protagonist, David Bowman, lies in bed. Responding, Stanley Kubrick states, I try to avoid doing this ever since the picture came out. Because when you just say the ideas, they sound foolish. Whereas if they're dramatized, one feels it. So... There is a slight second motivation here, and that slight secondary motivation is this. It's it's like, yeah, he wants everybody to have their own experience that's not sullied by what he intended, but he also feels essentially what I get from that is I, I feel kind of stupid saying it out loud. I'd rather dramatize it. I'd rather show you than tell you. And that's what he does, you know. Uh, continuing, he adds, the idea was supposed to be that he is taken in by godlike entities, creatures of pure energy and intelligence with no shape or form. They put him in what I suppose you could describe as a human zoo to study him. And his whole life passes from that point on in that room. And he has no sense of time. It just seems to happen as it does in the film, which is interesting because when you think about zoos, 
and animals in zoos. And you look at how we all time is perceived differently by different conscious consciousnesses in different ways. When we're young, time is very long. It, it you know, we perceive it as in take moments take forever. You know, as we get older, time gets shorter. We we've been we've been conscious long enough that moments that feel like endless don't feel endless all of a sudden. Fifteen minutes can go by like this. An hour can go by go by like this. Days go by like this. Years go by like this. Decades go by like this. It's it's quite scary. It's quite um, terrifying when you think about it. What? How does that work for animals? Animals have consciousness. Whether you agree with that or not, it's a fact. Yes, all animals have some semblance of consciousness. Some are more conscious than others. There are different levels of consciousness. Is an insect's consciousness going to be the same as a dolphin's consciousness or a chimpanzee's consciousness? No, of course not. So all these creatures, they all, it also is you know, predicated and relegated to your time span. How long are you here for? How long is a fruit fly only lives for 24 hours, right? They, they, they have a 24-hour lifespan. Could you imagine that? Or butterflies. They have these very short... There are some butterflies that are born without mouths. So they can't ingest nutrition and basically have to breed before they die of starvation. How cruel, right? But like that's like life. And my point is with all this is that if you're... The, your, your, the time for which you're here is going to be directly related to how you perceive your consciousness. And it's different for every conscious being. And so it's like this idea like that if maybe if you're a being of pure energy and light with no form, something so evolved beyond measure that you can't even be perceived in the same way that can an ant perceive what you are a human being think about this think about this for one second i'm about to get i know i sound like acid jeff right now go about to go down a, a crazy rabbit hole that's going to blow your mind think about it like this imagine an ant trying to perceive what a shoe is a shoe in like a shoe wraps around a foot the foot is thousands of times and thousands of like pounds heavier whatever to an ant at least heavier the mass density than the ant itself belongs to a creature of size and shape that it can't possibly fathom that's been alive thousands of times longer than its lifespan a human being and we look at us the human beings are just such fragile creatures but yet to an ant we are this like omnipotent like long living thing imagine trying to explain the internet to an ant or or you know television trying to explain what a macguffin device is to an ant oh a macguffin device is a literary device liter literature is this you know writing writing is part of language like it's just crazy it's crazy to comprehend so in that same way david who is in the chamber cannot comprehend these beings made of pure energy and matter we can't comprehend them. We can't comprehend how they how they exist in time and space. And so we're seeing this all from David's perspective, right? Like it's kind of crazy when you think about it like that. Um, this is how I find a belief in a higher power 
because I can't imagine that human beings are at the top, right? In the same way that the ants are the ants and we are the people compared to the ants, there's got to be something that we are the ants to, right? On some level, I don't know. <laughs> You're like, whoa, Jeff, I just wanted the ending. I did not want to go down this crazy rabbit hole. This is like what this stuff does, you know? Um, continuing, he says the idea uh, was supposed to be that he is taken in by the godlike entities, creators of pure energy and intelligence with no shape or form. They put him in uh, what you could describe as a human zoo to study him, and his whole life passes before his eyes. So his whole life passes. Elaborating further into this concept, Kubrick then notes they chose this room, which is a very inaccurate replica of French architecture. So much in the way that, like, you're trying to replicate the environment that a chimpanzee loves in a zoo, which may not be exact because we don't know what chimpanzees, like, exactly, like, through their consciousness perceive their environment and feel comfortable. It might be some distant approximation. How do we know what steak tastes like? Um you know, uh, so they they use an inaccurate replica of French architecture. Uh, it's deli- uh, deliberately so inaccurate because one was suggesting that they had some idea of something that he might think was pretty, but weren't quite sure. Just as we're not quite sure what to do with zoos with animals, so it's the same thing. Like these beings of pure light aren't quite sure what David is going to enjoy in his zoo-like enclosure. So instead, we're just going to do what we think that he would appreciate, you know, concluding the filmmaker comments when they get finished with him, as happens in so many myths of all cultures in the world, he is transformed into some kind of super being and sent back to Earth It is the pattern of a great deal of mythology. uh, And that was what we were trying to suggest. Though whilst this is certainly a definitive answer, it is, man. I mean, that's it doesn't get more definitive than that, right? Um, uh, while this is certainly a definitive answer from Stanley Kubrick, 2001, A Space Odyssey, is imbued with so much visceral emotional content that it remains a subjective experience, totally, totally a subjective experience, with musings on life, death, rebirth, and, and existentialism. And it's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. I love the ending to... I love the ending of of 2001 Space Odyssey. When I look at that, you know, there's a prayer. Um, I'm not sure which prayer it is. It's some Christian prayer, I think. But it's this idea of it's only by – oh, maybe it's the 11th step prayer. It's the 11th, uh, the prayer of uh, St. Francis. It's only by dying that we are reborn to eternal life or something like that. And while not being a Christian, I do love the notion of how that relates to a space odyssey, that his his body, his humanity as he knows it, eventually withers away within this zoo-like enclosure. And he in turn, like, he sheds his humanity and is reborn as something more, like evolving into the next step because the movie begins – with monkeys, right, or primates, and how they throw the bone up, and then it gets juxtaposed with what would come, you know, satellites. We first threw bones into the air, and, you know, thousands of years later, we throw satellites into the air. And then this is the next evolutionary step. It's beautiful, man. It's it's really, really beautiful. Um, so that's it. That's all I wanted to say today. 
little uh little thoughtful sort of meditation for today on the the true meaning from the director from the guy who made the film himself stanley kubrick i love it i really truly love it um join us next time tomorrow as a matter of fact doing sinful celluloid 10 p.m eastern standard time check it out uh we're going to talk about satanic cult movies in the meantime we have a nice way of saying goodbye Peace.